Man, I love that song. A little self-defeating since I picked it, but I absolutely love that song. That He will bear our weight and wear our shame. And uh, we, we need someone to bear our weight. And praise God that he has provided it. You know, it is that time of year we are now in full Christmas swing. When you look at uh, all the stores around you, the uh, television channels have switched over to Christmas movie marathons. The radio stations are on all Christmas music, which I know some of you will groan all the way to the new year. And you are wrong. It is wonderful. I am an absolute Christmas nut. I, uh, I mean, not just... Not, I'm, not, I'm not just a theological snob Christmas nut who's like, I'm a Christmas nut, but only about holy things. Like, no, I, I love all of it. I love the stockings. We've had eggnog on tap in the house for a month. We, I, I, love, I buy Christmas movies, all of the commercialized stuff. I'm pretty certain about Santa Claus still. I love all of it. And I know that a lot of, of Christmas has become quite commercialized, but honestly, our culture has no other time when we celebrate. You know, lo- looking around and looking at how the culture reacts to Christmas, even though it has become so commercialized, there's these vestiges, vestiges of the true meaning of Christmas, the true story, that are just kind of left over. And it's so fascinating to me that a culture that is largely secular still clings to some of these things about Christmas... It can't seem to let them go. For some reason, our culture that, that really has pushed religion to the side, and especially Christianity, we, we say religion, but we really mean because we were a Christianized culture, we, we're really talking about Christianity, has been so pushed to the side, and yet for some reason our culture cannot let go of some of the truths about Christmas. You look around this time of year, and you will see things like peace on earth, goodwill to men. And you walk into Target, and you can buy that on a napkin. You can buy that on a hot pad. You can buy that on a sweater. You can buy that on a, on a, you can, you can buy that on a cover for your car, for Pete's sakes. Our culture, for some reason, it, it cannot get away from some of these things about Christmas. Joy to the world, literally last year, printed on millions of Starbucks cups. Joy to the world. The the words of the angels announcing Christ's birth. Why is it that our culture cannot let go of Christmas? And yet at the same time, those very things that they cannot let go of have become fairly vacuous. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. To, To the average person walking down the street, that just means warm and fuzzy feelings. Joy to the world just means... Happy Christmas. See, I I think it's really no surprise many people have become upset in the last few years that our culture seems to be drifting away from some of these phrases, Merry Christmas has become Happy Holidays. I don't think that should really surprise us because for most of these people, when they were saying Merry Christmas, all they meant was Happy Holidays. These phrases, they're still there. We can't let go of them, but they've been ripped out of context, removed from their meaning, and and it doesn't really mean anything to these people. In a sense, we should be thankful that it's being removed so that we can re-explain it. But I fear less for the culture out there when it comes to Christmas language. They don't know the Savior. And more for us in the church, because I think if we're not careful, if we're not honest, we can use the truths of Christmas we can hear these phrases and have them mean pretty much nothing to us. Joy to the world. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Go tell it on the mountain. All of that stuff can become just shorthand for a happy Christmas, it's Christmas time. And, and it ceases to have real content of what God was actually doing. These biblical proclamations that, that came with sincere hope and world-changing impact become simply kind of shorthand for it's that time of year again. So what does it really mean to sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom his favor rests? What are we actually saying? 
This morning, I want to look for that answer in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 today. If you turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 40. You know, the interesting thing is, one of the reasons why these passages become so generic to us is because we've heard them over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? I had the blessing of being raised in a Christian home. I have the Christmas story out of the Bible memorized, not because I ever made any effort to memorize it, but because we read it so many times. So when we've heard these things over and over and over again, familiarity breeds apathy, and they cease to mean anything. But for the people hearing this, when this was written, they were hearing it for the first time. So let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 40 and see if maybe we can just capture again some of the meaning of what Christmas is really about. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground will become level. The rough places, a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. The beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. See, this passage, passage that we normally take just a few verses out of at Christmas. We're going to talk about John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness, the fulfillment of part of this prophecy. This passage comes to Israel with an order for the prophet. Isn't that interesting? This this prophecy does, normally the prophet just speaks God's words to the people. And there's a few rare instances when God has a specific order for the prophet. And this is one of those passages Specifically, he says to the prophet repeatedly, go comfort my people. Go comfort them. He tells the prophet, my people are in distress. And you have to go speak with them. You have to go remind them that I love them. Why is it that God's people would be despairing of his love? Why is it that they would be crushed to the point of needing a word of comfort? Well, the story is rather typical, actually. In fact, if you know the Old Testament, even marginally well, you can probably predict what's going on. Turn back a page to Isaiah 39. We have the, uh, we have the story that leads us to Isaiah 40. And uh, read with me, if you would, beginning at verse 1 of Isaiah 39. It's a short chapter, just a few verses, that kind of describes how Israel had gotten itself into this predicament. At that time, Merak Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, that's the king of Judah, for he had heard that he had been sick and recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouse. There was nothing in the house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show him. And then Isaiah the prophet came to the king Hezekiah and said, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They come to me from the far country of Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? Kind of kind of sounds like uh, some of you parents when you're asking one of your kids what they've done wrong. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know what they saw. What did they see in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have 
seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, when all which your fathers have stored up this day will be carried away to Babylon and nothing will be left. Some of your own sons will come from you, whom your father shall be taken away. There will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. So what's the big deal? Well, if you remember, uh, if you remember Joshua's message a few weeks back, this is the constant battle that Israel is fighting. That they are oppressed by their neighbors, and God calls out to them, trust me and me only. Don't involve yourselves with pagans who worship other gods. Trust me to protect you. And so what's going on behind the scenes here? What Hezekiah is kind of trying to, trying to guard his words before the prophet is that he's showing off to try to win an ally. Here's Assyria, the big bad of the day, and Babylon, they're, they're rising up, they're getting buff, and Hezekiah goes, here's my chance to show them that we're something, and then maybe, maybe I can build, build a relationship with them, and then we'll be allies, and I'll have some visible reassurance, some visible protection from Assyria. It's politically shrewd. It's a good idea. But God had said, trust me and trust me only. Hezekiah wants a fallback plan. God, trusting you is great, but just in case, you know, Babylon's pretty tough. It seems like it'd be good to have them on our team. And so Hezekiah says, it doesn't hurt to show them anything. He brings them in. He tries to win them over, show them how awesome Israel is. And Isaiah says, you've done the exact opposite. These are not God's people. They're, they're going to, everything that they came and saw, they're going to take out, take away. They're going to steal it because you refused to trust God and trust him only. This is a rather tragically typical picture of Israel's trouble. And it might seem like a small infraction to us, but the prophets are constantly giving us a picture of what was really going on spiritually when Israel ran to other protectors. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. Just a few, few books ahead in your Bible, if you're new to your Bible, before the book of Daniel. And the prophet Ezekiel, all the prophets do this to some extent or another, but Ezekiel does this in the most pictorial and graphic ways of kind of taking reality, what we see, things that, decisions we've made, choices that are happening in our lives, and Ezekiel kind of pulls back the curtain and shows what is really going on spiritually, what's really going on in our hearts. He has these visions where God says, this is what you see, now let me knock a hole in the wall, and you can see what's really going on. And Ezekiel sees this pattern of Israel going to other nations to protect them when God says, I will protect you, and this is what he sees. And I'll warn you guys, this, this passage, this passage is graphic. Ezekiel doesn't pull any punches. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16, starting at verse 8. This is God speaking, personifying himself to Israel in a vision to Ezekiel. When I, that's God, passed by you, that's Israel, again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. I spread the corner of, my, corner of my garment over you, covered your nakedness, I made a vow to you, and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. It's a beautiful picture of God finding Israel cast aside, naked, without without protection, on the side of the road, and he falls in love and, and marries Israel. Just like that beautiful story from the book of Ruth where Boaz casts his cloak over Ruth. God says, that's what I did for you, Israel. I took you in when there was no one to love you, and I made you mine. I made a vow to you. I, I became your husband, Israel. I bathed you with water. I washed the blood off of you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. 
I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and chains on your neck and a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. This is the picture, the king. The king goes out and he sees a woman who has been cast aside, unprotected, even beaten. There's blood. And he loves her and places his love on her and, and commits himself to her only. It's a beautiful picture of what God does for his people. I, I'm committing myself to you, Israel. I will, I will make you my own. And I wish that that is where the story ended. But it doesn't. When Israel was running to other nations, what was really going on starts in verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore. Because of your renown, you lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. The like of this has never been or will ever be seen. This beautiful bride that the king had rescued and made royalty, put a crown on her head, uses her beauty to chase other men. I don't think I have to push the analogy for you to imagine the graphic picture that the prophet is trying to portray. See, the reason we struggle to understand the prophets often is because we don't take sin seriously, and I include myself in that. The reason I know none of us take sin seriously is because we continue to do it. See, we tend to think that sin is merely breaking a law, that it is merely breaking the rules, and breaking the rules isn't that big of a deal, right? But the prophet pulls back the curtain and shows us that the reality is sin is cosmic adultery. It is running to other lovers. It takes an intimacy that is meant to be devoted and shared only with God, and it offers it to other lovers. Israel chases after other men and even brings them into God's palace and you know what happens and God's response is understandable in the context of the passage but terrifying for Israel if you go down that passage to, to verse 37 this is God's response as a husband whose wife has run away and chased after other men, this is what God says. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see your nakedness. terrifying picture. I, I don't want to push the analogy any further, but you get what he's getting at. God gives this wife over to her sins and gathers all, all of these lovers around her, lovers who don't really love her, who are only using her for her beauty, and he says, fine. Fine. So by leaving her loving husband, she finds herself left in a world of darkness and debauchery. And friends, this is a very graphic picture. But it has to be in order to get through our thick skin that we develop towards sin and remind us that sin destroys. It always leads us to a place that we never 
thought we would go. Like a woman surrounded by lovers that she thought no one knew anything about and she's exposed to all of them. Sin takes us, it will find us out, it lays us bare. And Israel finds itself surrounded by its enemies that it thought it could woo, that it thought it could impress, that it thought it could get away with just one little extra time away from God. And its very sin is destroying it. Friends, sin has to destroy. It's part of its very nature because it goes against God. He designed the universe. He set it in place. He made it work. So violating the laws of God is violating the very laws which make our lives work. Even more so, God himself, act, God himself actively resists sinners. He gathers the nations against Israel so that she will turn from her sin, so she will finally see that her adultery does nothing for her. He gives her over to the consequences of her sin so that she will see that it is vacuous and empty, that her adultery will result in nothing but pain and shame. Friends, even before we get to the body of the message, I realize I haven't even gotten past verse 1 yet. But it is desperately important that if you hear nothing else today, perhaps God has you here for this, that if you are sitting on the edge of sin, that you are thinking about chasing something because it, it looks so good, it seems so enticing, and God will forgive you because that's just what he does, please, Turn back. It will not fulfill you. It will leave you empty. It will destroy you because that is the way the world works. Your sin will find you out. Mark my words today, December 18th, 2016. You heard it here. Your sin will find you out. It will not fulfill. It will not make you happy. So please, if you hear nothing else this morning, turn to the King of Kings. If you are on the other side of that equation, though, this morning, if you have chased after some sin, some relationship, some pattern, something in your life, and you walk through the doors of the church this morning, maybe everybody knows about it, maybe nobody knows about it, but you know that you have found out what Israel found out. That sin has crushed and destroyed. And you are even wondering if you can pick up the pieces. This message is for you. Because that's where God finds Israel when he walks into the room and tells Isaiah, comfort my people. Tell them there's hope. Tell them there's comfort. So this morning, if you are in that place, this message is for you. And if you're not there right now, I want you to meet the kind of God who would give you this message. So look at Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord God. Speak tenderly to her and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Look at how God approaches this people when they are broken. Comfort and speak tenderly. Isaiah, don't crush them. Don't overwhelm them when they are spent. Speak tenderly. When Israel comes to a place that it finally realizes that its sin will never fulfill, that it will not bring peace, that it will not bring lasting pleasure, then God comes to them not with a rod, but with peace. He doesn't bring with him bluster or recriminations, those things that we are so tempted to do. He doesn't come demanding a pound of flesh. He doesn't say to Israel, you've made your bed, now lie in it. See, you had your years of fun, now it's my turn. No, he comes to them and says, comfort. Isaiah, speak, speak tenderly. They're broken and they need to know that I love them. Isaiah 42 describes 
The Messiah, when he comes, as a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Beautiful truth that when you are bent down and broken by sin and the world, when you have nothing left in you but a little bit of smoke, that this God loves those kind of people. He will not snuff that out. You know, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is James 1.5. Real simple verse. James is a very practical book, but he reflects the character of God when he talks about finding wisdom. And I love this little caveat he throws in. You don't have to turn there. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach. So when you come and you go, okay, I'm foolish. I don't have wisdom. I need God to fix me. His answer is to give you generously without going, I told you so. I knew you weren't going to get it. I knew you'd flunk. No, he says, here's wisdom. I love you. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And then God assures them that their punishment is done. He says, cry to her, her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. I think the reason he says this, I see this many times, talking with people who have been broken by their sin. One of the things that, that, that I've noticed is some people, some people are kind of high-minded, heavy-handed, and repentance is hard. So it takes a lot for God to break them. Some people are, are, are fairly tender, and repentance comes quick, but with it comes on the other side, this temptation to kind of look over their shoulder and think, you know, God, God certainly can't forgive me. Not, not fully. Grace can't be real. So I'm just kind of waiting. When I trip up again, because I'm weak, and my feet are made of clay, and when I trip up again, I know he's coming. He, he can't really be done punishing me. There's something else coming down the pike. And God says to Jerusalem, speak tenderly to her. Tell her her warfare is ended. And this phrase that might throw us off a little bit, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, comes across in English a little difficultly. And I, I wrestled with this as I studied. I don't think he is saying that Jerusalem is, is being has been punished twice as hard as her sin deserved. One, because that would not bring comfort, which is the whole point of this passage. Two, the Old Testament is very clear that suffering doesn't pay for sin. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that even the suffering of the animals in the sacrifices didn't pay for sin. They were merely a pointer for God who was forbearing to punish that sin until it was laid upon Christ. So our suffering can never pay for our infinite debt before God. Finally, even in the text, it says her sins were pardoned. You can't pay for what's been pardoned. So what is he saying? The truth is this. Discipline is never us paying for our sins. It is suffering that God uses, allows to turn our hearts towards him. So what do we do with this in this passage? Well, I think, it, I think it's fairly simple. The Hebrew word double, it was a way to say more than enough. It, we might use it as physics, physics, a figure of speech. We say we've got bunches, barrels, dozens. We don't really mean that. We mean there's more than enough. And God is saying to Israel, you've suffered more than enough. I'm not going to punish you anymore. You've been disciplined. You've heard my words. You've turned the rod isn't going to come maliciously. I don't, I don't discipline my people beyond what they need to hear me. You've been punished enough. Don't look over your shoulder. You've repented, and I'm here. And we could stop there, and that would be a pretty good message. But the prophet doesn't leave us there. I think the world often leaves us there. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. God loves the earth. Nobody's punished. Everybody's happy. Merry Christmas. And the Christmas truth just becomes a warm blanket of sentimentality. A nice declaration from afar that God sits in heaven, distinct from his creatures, not interacting with them. And he, over, over at Christmas time, he just kind of throws fairy dust on the earth and says, I'm happy with everybody. But the prophet doesn't say that. 
God doesn't sit from afar and blanket the earth in his peace. No, what we're about to see is that God is coming to town personally. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert the highway for our God. In the great exodus, the one you all know about because of Charlton Heston movies at Easter time, in the great exodus, God personally leads his people as a pillar of fire through the wilderness. So here we find Israel is now, is now in the land. The wilderness is what surrounds Israel. Home is here, wilderness all around, ocean on one side. And Israel now hears this voice that God is coming back through the wilderness to get you. Just like he brought you through before, he's coming back by the same route to be with you. Verse 4. Every valley will be lifted Every mountain made low, uneven ground will be made level. The rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's the picture. God is coming, barreling through the desert, zealous for the ones he loves. He is rushing in from the wilderness to save his people. Valleys thrust down. Or valleys lifted up, mountains thrust down. Even the earth itself will be no impediment because this God loves to save. He will not be kept from the people he wants to comfort. Do you realize that, that is God, well, that's what God is like? People have so many weird, twisted views of God that he's a cosmic killjoy or he's just fine with everything in the, the gospel the, the God of the gospel, the God of the Bible is so much bigger and so much better than we make him out to be. That he would rush in from the desert. He would move heaven and earth to show love to his people. To comfort the afflicted. Do you know that that is what God is like? But there's another order in this passage, isn't there? See, yes, God is rushing and coming in to get us. But there's a reality for us in that. In verse 3, in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. See, that's our job. We are to prepare a way for the Lord. Those of you who hear this word... Those of you who hear this prophecy, prepare the way for the Lord. Spend your life getting ready for this king. Friends, have we forgotten this? There, there used to be in the church a very a large intensity about the return of Christ. And with that came some foibles that we probably want to avoid. But I feel like in my generation, we have drifted away from that entirely. And I find myself asking the question, do we truly spend our lives preparing and waiting for God to return? Do we really believe that the only thing that matters in this life is that which matters for the next? I fear that we have gotten way too comfortable here. We have forgotten that this is not our home. And we start living for the right job or the right house struggle for Christian families is even harder. You want to have perfect kids who are in the right schools, the right sports leagues, the right bands and orchestras. You want to set them up for a good life. And we forget, this isn't the only life. I fear we've gotten so much caught up into thinking about this life and preparing for ourselves or for our children that we forget that this life isn't about this life, it's about the next. If Christ came back today, would you have a bit of egg on your face? Well, God, I, I meant to be kingdom-focused, but I got a lot on my plate. Friends, we live our lives in a state of preparation. An old poem says, only one life to live soon will be passed, only that done for Christ will last. Will the things that dominate your schedule, things that dominate your thinking, 
the things that you spend your time on in patterns, will they matter in 10 million years? And friends, that's not just a kitschy illustration. You will be around to think about it. Friends, spend your life. Exhaust your life. Pour out your life until you're drained. Skip things that you could have done in this life to prepare for the next. You won't regret it. Why? It's right there in verse 5. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. When you see the glory of the Lord, the beauty of that one person who in all the universe is most worthwhile, most pleasurable, most meaningful, you will not feel that one moment enjoying and preparing for the enjoyment of that glory was wasted. Friends, I want to be ahead of the game on enjoying that glory. I want to be ahead of the curve on loving that God so that when I get to heaven, I already got a lot of heaven in me. Are we preparing the way for the Lord? Are our lives poured out and going, he could come tomorrow, I've got to get ready. He could come tomorrow, I've got to talk to that person. Could be tonight, I want to relate to my kids rightly. He could come. Are we ready? Verse 6, he says to Israel again, he reminds them again, a voice says, cry. What shall I cry? And I said, all flesh is grass. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. God's reminding Israel repeatedly in this text, I am coming to comfort you and nothing will stop me. In that first little section, he says, I'm coming to comfort you. Your sin won't stop me because it's been pardoned. I've removed that barrier. I've taken care of that. The punishment is complete. Your sin won't stop me from coming to comfort you. In the second section, verses 3 through 5, he says, the very world won't stop me. I'll move heaven and earth. And now in these verses, in verses 6 through 8, he says, human powers won't stop me. All flesh is like grass. The world powers come and go. To Israel, he says, you you are so worried right now, Israel, that Assyria is too big. That, that, That you've been in Assyria, you've been under oppression from Assyria for so long that I can't handle it that I won't be able to make it through the bully to get to you, that I could be detained by Babylon. And he says, remember this, Israel. Flesh is grass. He says, you know, grass, we see this grass comes and goes with the season. You don't even think about it because you know what happens. All of our lawns right now are totally brown. They faded in the winter. And I doubt very much that any of us were really broken up about that. And we just sat there, sat there staring out at your lawn going, it died. It died. What's going to happen? No, we know grass fades and grows with the seasons. It'll be back. You don't even think about it. It'll come back. God says that the mighty powers of the earth are like that to him. So you got a Babylon problem? Whatever. They come and go. They fade and grow. Empires, empires die off and rise up. God sits in heaven. It doesn't change him a bit. He said, your, your giants are not my giants. No Babylon, no Assyria will keep me from coming. They fade and go like the grass in winter and summer. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Friends, empires come and go, powerful people come and go, institutions come and go, and when they're all gone, there's one solid thing behind, beyond, and under all of them. The word of the Lord stands. In the past year, I've heard a lot of people start to use this argument, came out of the mouth of our our president at one point, that that people who cling to the view that the Bible is still the authority for life are on the wrong side of history. That that we will end up 
being under historical judgment that we made a mistake. And that argument bothers me. I'm kind of a hobby historian, so that argument bothers me because I think just as a historian, that's a dumb argument. We don't know what history will look like. We're good at looking at the past, not predicting the future. But when someone says that, the thing that they absolutely do not understand is that the final verdict doesn't come from history. There is something beyond history, something beyond behind, below, and holding up everything that happens here. The word of the Lord stands forever. We're not betting on history. Yeah, history might think we're pretty dumb. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if history thinks we're dumb. We're betting on eternity. We're not betting on history. And the word of the Lord stands forever. He's reminding them, Israel, don't give up. Just because years come and go, don't give up. I work the long game. My word stands forever. So he tells them in verse 9, get up on a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. He's the amazing, amazing thing. Just like in our passage last week, Isaiah is getting increasing speed, and each verse reveals something bigger and better and greater. This is God coming. He, he, it's not some judge. It's not some mighty king. This is God himself will come to save his people. He's not leaving this to any of his lieutenants. I was used to chuckle. I had a had a, an elderly lady back in my church in South Dakota who very worried about guardian angels. And, uh, and concerned, I think she was truly a Christian and just a little mixed up, longing for some reassurance, just wanted, came to me when I was kind of leading our college group, I was a minister there, and just, she wanted reassurance that it was real, that guardian angels were watching over her. And so I, I took her to the Bible and said, well, you know, the Bible says not very much about angels, but here's some passages, but uh, I love you, but I don't, I don't see him. And it really shook her up. I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh, why, why does that bother you? Until I realized that what she wanted was to be taken care of. She wanted to know that, that someone was protecting her. And I said, we'll call, her, we'll call her Betty. I said, Betty, you don't have an angel. You have God himself. Why, why do you need an angel? God himself is with you. He's not going to assign some lieutenant, some, some lesser being to take care of his precious child. No, he, he, he is in you and with you. And he's, he's not going to let anything happen to you that doesn't come from his sovereign hand. God himself comes for his people. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might. With his arm, he rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. His mighty arm. We talked about his might and rule last week. And here the prophet gives us this picture at the very last verse that we're going to look at today, verse 11. He brings us right back to verse 1. Why is it that Israel should be comforted and not full of fear? Because he comes as a shepherd who will tend his flocks. Look at the, look at the beauty of the tenderness of this. He will tend his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom close to his chest. He will lead those who are with young. He comes not only to rule, though he will certainly do that, but his ruling authority comes in the form of a gentle shepherd. 
See, might has more than one expression. Sometimes we think only of God's might as whirlwind and fire. And yet the expression of God's might towards his people is one who gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his chest and gently leads those who are young. See, the, the shepherd is this perfect picture of power and gentleness. The boy David who can go toe-to-toe and wrestle a bear and then quiet his lambs with singing. If I can chase a, chase a little rabbit, I realize time is short, I'll chase a little rabbit for my guys in the room, all right? This one's for free. True manhood looks like this. True manhood doesn't look like being a stoic, gruff jerk. It looks like this. A real man is a man who can assert dominion, who goes and wrestles a bear, and then comes home and cuddles with his kids. Who wields mighty authority, who clangs when he walks, but does what's best for his wife. That's what real manhood looks like. And our culture has twisted that in a thousand different ways. But I want you to know that toughness looks like Jesus. Look at what God does and how God treats his people. He doesn't just beat people up to look tough. No, the mighty shepherd is the one who can pick up his lambs and hold them near his heart. That one's for free. So here comes God on a cosmic scale coming to the world like a shepherd saying, comfort. And this last little phrase, the phrase that I just glossed over if you're, if you're reading along with me, a phrase I wrestled with a lot in my study, he says, the Lord comes with might, this is verse 10, his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. And I wrestled with that for a long time. A lot of commentators, in fact, a lot, I, I will give you forewarning, a lot of commentators a lot smarter than me think that that means that God is bringing rewards, the rewards of heaven. He's going to reward his people. He's going to bless them, and that's what it means. His, his reward is with him. He's, he's brought along his reward. And as I wrestled with this passage, I came to the conclusion that that's not the case. Um, I was directed there by some very good commentators as well, so I'm not making this up on my own. But in the context of the passage, it seems much more likely that the reward that is before him, notice that, it says a recompense, it's his wages, his wages. The, the, the payment for the work that he has done is before him. And what is before him? His people, his lambs, the ones that he saves, the ones that he loves and holds to his heart. The work that God is doing is to come to achieve the goal of redeeming a people for himself so that he can hold them near to his side and comfort them. That is his reward. His redeemed bride, his lost lamb, the ones he loves. Friends, in closing, in a Christmas series, I hardly need to tell you that the fulfillment of this passage is Jesus. I mean, it's, it's outright said that John is the voice crying in the wilderness. And as Jesus walks out of the wilderness after his baptism, he is God walking into Jerusalem, coming for his people. We know him as the good shepherd. The one who calms the storms and casts out demons, who while walking the earth was holding the stars in place by the word of his power, is the one who comforts a repentant adulteress, who reasons gently with the woman at the well, who plays with children in the midst of his ministry. But even more than that, Jesus is the embodiment of the fact that God comes with comfort, not wrath. To a world that deserves judgment, God's response was not to burn it all and start over but for he himself to take on flesh. He became man in the fullness of all that it means to be a man, to walk among us. Not to bring a message of destruction, but a message of peace. To tell people that if they would repent, God would not strive with them forever. 
Friends, Christmas isn't just the message that there is peace on earth, but the fact that the bringer of that peace has come personally. The Almighty has come to comfort. Think of the, uh, the uh, some of you guys will know this if you're, you grew up in the 80s like me, the band U2, when love came to town. That love embodied showed up at Christmas. God didn't simply sprinkle goodwill over the earth like fairy dust. No, that would never have done. He personally came as a shepherd to gather his people. And if you are here this morning and you are downtrodden and broken, take heart. Look how far God has come for you. This is the God you worship. This is the God who cries out to you, one who loves you that much. Christmas is a show of his love on so many levels. Even before we get to the cross, he did, not he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He gave it up for you. But friends, for, for Christians here this morning, this comes with an imperative for us. This entire passage is oozing with orders and directives. Comfort my people, cry out, prepare the way for the Lord, go up on a high mountain and declare. Tell people that the Lord is coming to heal and restore, that he comes as a loving shepherd for his people. Friends, this passage orders the people of God, people like the prophets, people like the priests, people who knew God, go to the people that are doubting him and tell him that he comes in peace. That there is a chance to be reconciled to him. That if we prepare the way, he will accept us with love. Friends, we are those people. We know God. We have the good news. And we have the ability to bring it to a world that desperately needs it, that is lost and broken and crushed, dying under the weight of the consequences of their own sins, sins that we often scoff at them for committing. And in Christmas time, guess what? They're already thinking about it. They're already saying joy to the world. They're already singing peace on earth. And we have the chance, just like Isaiah, to come to them and say, do you know that God comes with comfort? Do you know there's a way out? You really can be at peace. Friends, it is Christmas time. We have the words of comfort. We have something to say. Go get on a high mountain and say it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You will not strive for us with us forever. You did not come to punish, but with peace. You came to show us love even when we were running away to other lovers. Open our hearts today, Father. I pray for those here who maybe don't even know you, who do not know the God of all comfort. Move in their hearts today that they may come to see Christ in all of his beauty. And Father, embolden us this Christmas to seize this opportunity to declare the word of the Lord. The Almighty comes with comfort. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.